Good morning. <clears throat> if you don't know me, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's my privilege to be sharing from Revelation once again this morning. We'll be continuing on in our series in the book of Revelation by picking back up with the third church that Jesus addresses in Revelation chapter 2. We've seen in this series, which we've titled uh, Lion, Lamb, and Lord, an introduction to who Jesus is and what he's all about in chapter 1. And now, as we're working through these seven churches, we're seeing Jesus address some good things and some bad things about each one. In Ephesus, a couple weeks ago, you might remember, we saw that the church rightly held on strongly to their theology, uh, but their problem was they let go of their love. And Jesus encouraged them, uh, called them to remember how far they'd fallen and repent of their compromise of love for people. Last week in Smyrna, we saw a church who was suffering extreme persecution and was warned of coming trials and even imprisonment and death. To them, Jesus said, be faithful unto the point of death and promised to grant them the crown of life. Well, this morning's message is titled, Pergamum, a Church of Compromise. We'll be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. If you're not there, if you'd open up whatever Bible you have, whether that's on your phone or if you have a paper Bible with you, uh, I'm preaching from the Christian Standard Bible, but you're welcome to use whatever translation you want. It's just always helpful to have that open so you can follow along. Let's <clears throat> read together Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. It says this, Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, Pergamum, like Smyrna, was a city that's located in modern-day Turkey. Remember, Smyrna was a port city right off the Aegean Sea. Well, Pergamum is located about 16 miles inland from where Smyrna is. The word Pergamum in Greek literally means citadel, and the city was gorgeous. It had a library that boasted over 200,000 volumes in it, which might not seem like a lot. You know, we have a pretty great library here in Wisconsin Rapids. But remember, this was before the printing press, and so 200,000 volumes, all handwritten. It's an impressive library. It also had a huge upper terrace with sacred and royal buildings, and probably of greatest note along the upper terrace was uh, a great altar of Zeus that jutted out near the top of the mountain. It was a city where religion flourished, and it was the center uh, of worship for four important pagan cults of the day, and 
It was the official center in Asia for the imperial cults. You might remember that the imperial cult is the idea of sort of worshiping all things Rome, right? Especially the goddess Roma that we talked about last week and then recognizing the divinity of Roman emperors. That's the background of Pergamum in a nutshell. It's a place where Christians were able to live and seemingly not experience quite the persecution that they did in Smyrna, although one particular martyr is pointed out, but it's also a city that because of so many competing ideologies, it's a city where compromise was expected. So with all of that in mind, we're going to work through this text. We're going to see four C's in the church. First, the commitment of the church, the compromise of the church, the challenge of the church, and finally, the call to cross view. First, the commitment. Well, as is the case for these uh, letters to the churches, there's an opening, and in the first first verse, Jesus identifies himself to this church at Pergamum. To them, he says, he is the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. At the outset of Jesus' words to this church, he reminds them that it is he, not Rome or Zeus or Athene or anyone else. It is he, Jesus, who bears the sword. In other words, reminder, church, I am your ultimate authority, not Rome, not some other deity. So Pergamum, keep in mind as you hear or read what I'm about to say, that I am in charge. He continues on after this introduction in verse 13 with his praise for the church. So let's look at that again. Verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. The church at Pergamum was committed to the love of Jesus Christ and apparently to the love of one another. You might remember this was the very thing that the church at Ephesus struggled with. Right? They were known for their commitment to truth, but in the process of holding so tightly to truth, they compromised on their love. Not so with the church at Pergamum. Jesus praises them for the way that they cling to him in faith. They don't deny him even though they live in a spiritually confusing place, right? a place where the throne of Satan sits. Pergamum was at the center of Satan's subtle but sinister activity in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. You heard it was the official cult center of emperor worship in all of Asia and was also the first official center in Asia for the imperial cult. And because of that, Augustus granted permission for a temple to be erected in Pergamum in honor of the divine Augustus and goddess Roma. Satan was at work in all of those things. You can imagine how difficult it might be to maintain your love for King Jesus in a place where there are dozens of other gods and statues and emperors and thoughts and ideas vying for your worship. If your neighbors and your co-workers and your friends are all making sacrifices to these other things and they're devoted to them and it's deeply rooted in your city's culture, you'd be very tempted to walk away from your love for Jesus and join in worshiping these other gods. But the church at Pergamum didn't do that. They were holding on to the name of Jesus and did not deny their faith even when Antipas, that faithful witness, was martyred, right? We don't know much about Antipas. 
beyond what's mentioned here, but his mention does indicate to us that while religion flourished in Pergamum, Christians were still not fully exempt from the persecution that they endured simply by being in the Roman Empire. Some, or maybe even many, still died for their faith. But when that happened, this church continued to remain faithful in their confession of Jesus. The faith and steadfastness at the church of Pergamum is something to be admired and emulated. They continued to have faith in Jesus over and over, even during difficult times when others would have walked away and said, it's not worth it. They were committed to following Jesus. Well, based on that, Pergamum sounds pretty great, right? So what's the problem? Well, the problem in Pergamum is that while many, maybe even most of the believers, held fast to the name of Jesus, some were making a big compromise. Let's look back at verses 14 and 15 to see what's going on. Jesus says this, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what's going on here? Well, the story of Balaam is found primarily in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 to 25. And you might remember it as the story in the Old Testament of the talking donkey, right? There's that famous story, the talking donkey. Well, that's Balaam and Balak. The gist of it is this. A man named Balak, who is king of the Moabites, who are enemies of Israel, sees the nation of Israel come up out of Egypt, right? God is leading his people. He's called this nation Israel, and they've been overtaken by Egypt, but then God delivers them via Moses, right? They go to the Red Sea, and it splits, and they come out. Well, Balak is watching all of that happen, and he sees the nation of Israel coming up out of Egypt, and he's concerned about them. And so he calls upon this diviner named Balaam because he'd heard that Balaam could converse with God or gods or some sort of deity, and he wants Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel, probably to get rid of them, right, so they wouldn't encroach on his land and cause issues for him and all that. Well, Balaam says to Balak, look, I'll talk to Yahweh, that's God's personal name, and see what he says. But no matter what you do, even if, and he did, even if you offer me silver and gold and homes and land, I cannot pronounce a curse if Yahweh does not tell me to. Well, God, of course, is not going to allow Balaam to pronounce a curse on his chosen people, right? That's the people that he's just delivered out of Egypt, and he's leading them to the promised land. And so, obviously, he tells Balaam, no, you, you can't curse Israel, Well, eventually, after much convincing, uh, and God gets upset about this, Balaam goes to meet with Balak. and He's riding a donkey, and along the way, uh, the donkey starts to do some weird things. And so uh, the donkey walks down into this valley, and he doesn't stay on the path, and then, you know, Balaam gets kind of mad, and he takes him back up on the path, and then the donkey walks him into this wall, and he smashes his leg, and he's in pain, and so he beats the donkey. A donkey turns around and looks at him and says, what are you doing? Why are you beating me? Have I ever behaved like in the, this in the past? Don't you think maybe something else is going on? You're a diviner after all. Maybe there's something spiritual going on here you should be aware of. And then God opens his eyes and there's an angel of the Lord preventing him from going. It's a good story. You should go read it another time. Numbers chapter 22 to 25. Anyway, after Balaam gets to Balak, Balak asks him again three different times. He takes him up to three different peaks sort of surrounding these people called Israel, and he asks Balaam to pronounce God's curse on Israel. Each time we read that Balaam says that the Lord says no, and instead Balaam pronounces a blessing on the nation of Israel. 
Well, that sounds good, right? What did Balaam do wrong? He's gone. He's pronounced a blessing and not a curse on the nation of Israel. Well, there's more to the story than meets the eye in the book of Numbers. See, in Deuteronomy 23, reflecting back on this event, Moses writes that the Moabites are not allowed to enter into the assembly of God. They're not allowed to join in the nation of, with the nation of Israel praising Yahweh. Why? Well, Deuteronomy 23 verses 4 and 5 tells us. It says, This is because they did not meet you with food and water on the journey after you came out of Egypt, and because Balaam, son of Beor from Pathor, was hired to curse you. Yet the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but he turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. See, Balaam tried to curse Israel, but God didn't let it happen. He turned that curse into a blessing. Instead, it's very possible or even likely that Balaam in his heart had a curse and tried to speak that curse over the nation of Israel. But as he spoke, God changed his words into a blessing. We initially think Balaam is doing right in the eyes of God, but later we find out he is not. He's directly disobeying Yahweh, and we read here in Revelation that he's giving advice to Balak on how to get the Israelites to stumble and disobey God, namely through sexual immorality and by eating meat sacrificed to idols. You track with all that? Balak hires Balaam. He gives him all the silver and gold, and Balaam disobeys the Lord and tries to pronounce a curse. And when that doesn't work, he then says, well, look, I can't pronounce the curse, but Balak, here you go. Here's how you can get Israel to be unfaithful. Well, now... To the church at Pergamum, Jesus says, look, you are like those who hold to the teaching of Balaam and engage in sexual sexual immorality and eat meat sacrificed to idols. The stumbling block that was placed before the Israelites as they emerged from Egypt by Balak was the enticement of marrying foreign women. That's something that God explicitly forbid them from doing and eating meat sacrificed to idols. The Nicolaitans, cited here for the second time in Revelation, apparently encouraged the same things. So, why is all of this a problem and what's the compromise? Well, in the Old Testament, intermarriage with foreign nations for Israel always led to idolatry and a lack of devotion to Yahweh. And typically, when they gave themselves over to their desires for foreign wives and then slowly but surely started worshiping their foreign gods, God's ev- God, Father God, eventually gave Israel over to their sin and allowed them to be overtaken by a foreign nation. And for a period, they would live under the rule of someone else and it'd be miserable. And then God would rescue them and regather them and re-encourage them to follow him. That's the Old Testament. And now, here in Revelation, Jesus is saying that the church at Pergamum is doing the same thing. G.K. Beale, a commentator, writes this. He says, Israel was led to worship idols and commit immorality as a result of his, that is Balaam's, deceitful counsel. And the church was being led in the same direction by the Nicolaitans. Balaam became proverbial for the false teacher who, for financial gain, influences believers to enter into relationships of compromising unfaithfulness. With all the pressure around them from the various gods, Zeus and Rome and the goddess Roma and even the emperors, there were some in the body who had begun to intermarry their relationship with Jesus and these foreign gods. They had begun to merge worshiping, with Je- worshiping Jesus with worshiping something else. We can be 
really, really tempted to respond to this by saying, well, what's the big deal? Right? They're worshiping Jesus too, right? As long as they recognize that he is their ultimate authority, who cares if they worship these other lesser things along the way? What's the big deal if they make a sacrifice to Zeus or participate in a feast in honor of the goddess Roma and pray to her once in a while, right? They know, after all, that Jesus died for their sins and they're not being saved by these other things. So why not add in this other stuff and maybe hedge their bets a little bit, make their lives a little easier? Why can't they add some cultural norms into their faith? You can even imagine how they might spiritualize this a little bit, right? Well, if I do this, if I make this sacrifice to Zeus or I participate in this feast in honor of this other god, well, I'm doing that with my friend. And my friend is going to maintain that relationship with me. And then eventually, I can point them to the one true God, right? What's the big deal? Well, the church at Pergamum is participating in what theologians call syncretism. It's the idea of compromise. Compromise. I can have Jesus and I can add in a little bit of emperor worship too. A little Zeus or a little goddess Roma. After all, why not? Well, C.S. Lewis, who's famous for writing the Chronicles of Narnia, which many of you have maybe read or seen the movies, he wrote another book called The Screwtape Letters. This book is uh, basically a bunch of letters from one fictional demon to his apprentice named Wormwood. Well, this demon in one chapter describes syncretism or compromise as the ideal way to weaken Christians. He writes this, This demon says, what we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind that I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Lewis lists some Christianity ands here, right? But we could list dozens of these, right? Christianity and the things we can't give up. None of these things in and of themselves are necessarily bad, but when we begin to hold them on the same level of the gospel and they, rather than the words of God, begin to dictate our lives, how we live, how we think, and how we behave, then we are no better than those Christians at Pergamum worshiping Jesus and Roma. I just want to say, I might offend a few of you here in a couple of minutes uh, as we walk through these, but before you come yell at me after the service, which you're welcome to do if you want to come have words, that's fine, or you can send me an email, I'm okay with that. Consider that maybe as we talk about this list, the Holy Spirit is convicting. I've certainly been convicted uh, as I prepared for this message. Christianity and. Christianity and my American freedoms. Some of us might find ourselves tempted to fight to protect our rights as Americans to a much greater degree than we would ever consider protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity and consumerism. Some of us struggle with worshiping things. We look to things, items, experiences that we can consume to fill us up rather than Jesus. Or we begin to compromise by reading and consuming media, books, Movies, TV shows that are clearly not honoring to the Lord, but everyone else is doing it. I have to do it to fit in. It's fine, right? We consume and fill ourselves with unwholesome entertainment and foolishly say, well, I'm mature enough to handle it. Christianity and 
sexual gratification, one of the things that Jesus calls Pergamum on. Some of us might say that our sexual experiences are not to be dictated by Scripture, right? God can stay out of my bedroom, and that God will want me to be happy sexually and fulfilled and enjoy that relationship with whoever I want. Christianity and politics, the merging of the platform of one political party or another with the gospel. When this happens, we end up fighting for policies and for character traits in leaders that can't be found or justified anywhere in the pages of Scripture because we've so married ourselves to a political party and we look to politicians to turn our lives and our situations around rather than looking to Jesus. We're tempted to uphold a partisan platform to the same degree as the gospel and it happens on both sides of the aisle. Finally, Christianity and comfort. Some of us conflate and confuse being a Christian with living a comfortable life. This is the lie of the very very prevalent prosperity gospel, right? The Bible never promises comfort in this life, no matter how much Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn or T.D. Jakes tell us otherwise. In In fact, it's quite the opposite, right? Jesus promises there will be trials in this life. There will be trials in this life, but there's security in Jesus in eternity. Again, none of these things in and of themselves are necessarily bad. It's okay to enjoy American freedoms and to own nice things and to enjoy sex in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, as the Bible outlines, and to engage in politics and to live in relative comfort if the Lord should choose to bless you with that. But when we hold these things up on par with the gospel, we're on very dangerous ground. In fact, it's very possible to so water down the gospel with any of these other, other ideologies that we're no longer believing the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. We're embracing, as Lewis writes, some fashion with a bit of Christian coloring. We're taking the lifestyle we want to live and we're Christianizing it. And in doing so, we participate in false worship, in idolatry. God does not stand for halfway worship. Syncretism is not an option, even if we say it's for the sake of evangelism. We're not allowed to be chameleon Christians, blending in with the world around us. Romans 12 reminds us that we're not to be conformed to the world, but to be renewed by the transforming of our minds, that we may discern the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. It's impossible to discern God's will when our minds are conformed to what the world around us values rather than transformed to what Christ does. Pergamum has been infiltrated by believers who compromised, who blended and mixed together worship of Yahweh and worship of other things and gods. And when that happens, not only is God not worshipped, he's angered. The third and final section of this text is in verses 16 and 17. The challenge. Verses 16 and 17 say this. <clears throat> so repent. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus confronts the church and says, repent, repent, turn away from your sin of syncretism or I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. 
Quite literally, Jesus says he will wage war against so-called believers who have watered down the gospel. We saw in the Ephesian church that love really matters. And here we see that truth really matters to Jesus. Truth really matters to Jesus. When the church at Pergamum compromised on the truth, even if it was for the sake of love, it led to false worship and idolatry. And God will not tolerate it. In Exodus 34, 14, we read that the Lord is jealous for his reputation. You are never to bow down to another god. He is a jealous God. In Deuteronomy 6, 14 and 15, we read, Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of the earth. False worship and incorporating worldly ideals into the gospel is serious business, Jesus says. And God will not allow his rescue plan of salvation to be watered down. He will not allow his plan for eternal security and the good of those who love and trust in him to be confused for something else, something that is necessarily lesser than what Jesus offers in salvation. We cannot proclaim a false gospel that promises something less than God's plan. He won't allow his his gospel to be watered down with promises of comfort and political victories and lots of money. Each of those things pales in comparison to what Jesus actually offers in eternity. Freedom from sin and shame and suffering and pain and tears. And instead, we get to live in the presence of God forever, feeling completely fulfilled, completely seen and known and loved and cared for, fully forgiven of our sin and set free by the shed blood of Jesus Christ for eternity. Anything that's offered shy of that is a worthless substitute for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so, the challenge for Pergamum is to repent of their sin of syncretism, to repent of false worship and blending of ideologies into something that was no longer recognizable as faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus, it says, wields a sword in his mouth for those who do not repent of their sin. That is terrible news. He will wage war. But, but, verse 17 again ends with a promise to the one who conquers. That is, to the one who places their trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for salvation. To that one, he promises some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name inscribed upon it. Well, scholars are not really fully sure what this white stone and hidden manna are, but in reading through several potential suggestions, I think the most likely meaning for these two things are an entrance into heaven and participation in the marriage feast of the Lamb, this feast that we read about later in Revelation. It's a great big feast in heaven that believers will have with Jesus one day. It's going to be pretty amazing. Manna, you may remember, was that heavenly bread that rained down on the nation of Israel as God sustained them as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And the white stone seems to be borrowed from some sort of athletic competition where the winner, or the word here conqueror, would receive a white stone that admitted them in, in entrance into like an after party or a feast for the victors throughout the games. It's sort of like winning an Olympic gold medal and then if you flash your medal, you get entrance into this amazing party or feast after your competition. 
So, Jesus says, to the one who repents, to the one who turns from their sin and trusts only in Jesus for salvation, you will have entrance into my feast in the end. So what's the call to Crossview Church in all of this? Like last week, three things. First, repent and believe in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Jesus alone. If you've believed a false gospel, some version of Christianity and, whether that's something we talked about before or something I didn't touch on, repent and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. We heard in communion from Acts 4.12, which again says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. That could be expanded to say there is no other name or ideology or practice or item or experience or political party or nation under heaven by which we must be saved. It is only by the name of Jesus that anyone can be saved from their sin, rescued out of darkness and delivered to God's marvelous light. Second, realize that truth really matters. In a world where truth is relative and his truth is true for him and her truth is true for her and your truth is true for you and my truth is true for me, we need to wake up to the reality that there is an ultimate truth and it matters to Jesus. There is an ultimate truth and that truth matters to Jesus. So often in our culture, we want to let our experience and our feelings dictate how things ought to be, right? Especially when we disagree with what the Bible says about any given topic. But friends, experience does not dictate scripture. Scripture dictates experience. We don't get to go to God's word and tell it what is right. It comes to us and tells us what is right. We don't get to say, well, yeah, but my situation is unique and God would understand if I made this little compromise. I'm doing it for a good reason. We don't get to do that. Scripture dictates our experience, not the other way around. If I think something is right and the Bible says it's wrong, the Bible wins, period. If I think something is wrong and the Bible says, well, no, actually, that's good and right, the Bible wins, Period. If you're walking with the Lord long enough, this is going to happen where you rub against him and your opinion is different than his. When that happens, change your opinion. Change your opinion. Listen to the Lord. He is infinitely wiser than we are. And even if it's hard for us to see, we can trust that he knows what is best and we do not. Truth really matters. Finally, if truth really matters, We must keep each other accountable to what is true. The church at Pergamum was praised for clinging to Jesus and holding fast to his name, right? But in verse 14, it says, you have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. It isn't the whole church who had compromised and maybe it wasn't even all, it wasn't even the majority of them that had incorporated other things into their faith, right? Just some of them. And yet, the indictment is not only against those who had compromised. It's against the whole church. We as a church are a family. We're the very body of Christ. And we have an obligation to one another to hold each other accountable. Our connection to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, Scripture says, is actually deeper than the connection we have to our blood relatives. And so, when a brother or sister begins to stray and begins to compromise and begins to worship falsely, we have an obligation 
to lead them back to the cross of Christ. Lovingly and kindly and gently. Yes, it is true that God's word tells us just as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We need to sharpen one another by challenging one another and by wrestling with God's word together. But Jesus also says that they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so as we hold each other accountable, we have to be kind. We have to love. And we have to remember that our purpose in holding each other accountable is not to win a debate or to win an argument or to be victorious, but to spur one another on in Christ-likeness. The church at Pergamum had begun to be corrupted by syncretism and compromise and blended worship. Some among them traded true worship for an opportunity to fit in for a variety of reasons. And that temptation to conform our minds to the world and to blend worldly values with the gospel of Jesus Christ has endured for the last 2,000 years. Church, when you are tempted to add or subtract from the promises of God made through Jesus Christ in the gospel, repent. Repent of that blended worship. Confess it to him and turn back to Jesus who will forgive you and set you free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us what truth is. We thank you that we can turn to your word and we can read about all the things that you desire from us and all the ways that we're called to live our lives for you and all the ways that we're supposed to worship you. We thank you that you haven't kept that a secret and made us guess and try to figure out what to do. Lord, you've told us in your word. And so God, we just ask that as we have made compromises and as we have conformed our minds to what the world tells us rather than been transformed into what Jesus values. Lord, would you forgive us for that? Would you convict our hearts and give us the strength to walk away from those places where we've made compromises? We need your help to do that, but we know that you're faithful to help when we ask. You're also faithful to forgive when we confess, and so we confess that we continually compromise. Lord, we need your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.